Chapter Twenty One of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Chapter Twenty One. Hazel was up early next morning. She could not sleep and thought she would go down into the valley and look for spring mushrooms. She crept out of the house, still as death, except for Mrs. Marston's soft yet all-pervading snores. Out in the graveyard, where as yet no birds sang, it was as if the dead had arisen in the stark hours between twelve and two, and were waiting unobtrusively, majestically, each by his own bed, to go down and break their long fast with the bee and the grass-snake in refectories too minute and too immortal to be known by the living. The tombstones seemed taller, seemed to have a presence behind them. The lush grass, lying grey and heavy with dew, seemed to have been swept by silent passing crowds. Dank smell came up, and the place had at once the unkempt look worn by the scene of some past revelry, and the expectant air of a stage prepared for a coming drama. Foxy barked sharply, urgently alive in the stronghold of the dead, and Hazel went to explain why she could not come. They held a long conversation, Hazel whispering, Foxy eloquent of eye. Foxy had a marked personality. Dignity never failed her, and she could be hilarious, loving, or clamorous for food without losing a jot of it. She was possessed of herself. The wild was her kingdom. If she was in a kennel, so her expression led you to understand, she was there incognito and of her own choice. Hazel, sitting at Edward's table, had the same look. When the conversation was over and Foxy had obediently curled herself to sleep with one swift motion like a line of poetry, Hazel went down the hill. She felt courageous. Going to the valley was braving civilization. She had Mrs. Marston's skirt fastener, the golden butterfly, complicated by various hooks, to keep her petticoats up later on. She also had the little bag in which Edward was accustomed to take the Lord's Supper to a distant chapel. To her, mushrooms were as clean as the Lord's Supper, no less mysterious, equally incidental to human needs. In her eyes, nothing could be more magical and holy than silken, pink-lined mushrooms placed for her in the meadows overnight by the fairies, or by someone greater and more powerful, called God. As she went down the mountain, it seemed that the whole country was snowed over. Mist, soft, woolly and intensely white, lay across the far plain in drifts, filled the valleys and stood about the distant hills almost to their summits. The tops of Hunter's Spinney, God's Little Mountain and the hill behind Undern stood out darkly green. The long rose-briars, set with pale coral buds, looked elvish against the wintry scene. As Hazel descended, the mist rose like a wall about her, shutting her off from Undern and the mountain. She felt like a child out of school, free of everyone, her own for the pearly hours of morning. When she came to the meadows, she gathered up her skirts well above her knees, took off her shoes and stockings, and pinned her sleeves to the shoulders. She ran like a tightly swathed nymph, small and slender, with her slim legs and arms shining in the fresh cold dew. 
She looked for nests and called 'Cuckoo' to the cuckoos, and found a young one savagely egotistic, not ready for flight physically, but ready for untold things psychically. 'You'm proud stomached, you be,' said Hazel. 'You'd ought to be me, with an old sleepy lady drawing her mouth down whatever you do, and a young fellow ' She stopped. She could not even tell a bird about Reddin. She danced among the shut daisies, wild as a fairy, and when the sun rose, her shadow mocked her with delicate foolery. In her hand and in that of the shadow bobbed the little black Lord's Supper bag. She went on, regardless of direction. At last she found an old pasture where heavy farm horses looked round at her over their polished flanks, and a sad-eyed foal rose to greet her. There she found button mushrooms to her heart's content. Ancient hedges hung above the field and spoke to her in fragrant voices. The glory of the May was just giving place to the shell tint of wild roses. She reached up for some and her hair fell down. She wisely put the remaining pins in the bag for the return journey. She was intensely happy, as a fish is when it plunges back into the water. For these things, and not the God-fearing comfort of the mountain, nor the tarnished grandeur of Undern, were her life. She had so deep a kinship with the trees, so intuitive a sympathy with leaf and flower, that it seemed as if the blood in her veins was not slow-moving human blood, but volatile sap. She was of a race that will come in the far future, when we shall have outgrown our egoism the brainless egoism of a little boy pulling off fly's wings. We shall attain philosophical detachment and emotional sympathy. We have even now far outgrown the age when a great genius like Shakespeare could be so clumsy in the interpretation of other than human life. We have left behind us the bloodshot centuries when killing was the only sport, and we have come to the slightly more reputable times when lovers of killing are conscious that a distinct effort is necessary in order to keep up the good old English sports. Better things are in store for us. Even now, although the most expensively bound and most plentiful books in the stationer's shops are those about killing and its thousand ramifications, Nobody reads them. They are bought at Christmas for necessitous relations and little boys. Hazel, in the fields and woods, enjoyed it all so much that she walked in a mystical exultation. Reddin, in the fields and woods, enjoyed himself only, for he took his own atmosphere with him wherever he went, and before his footsteps weakness fled and beauty folded. The sky blossomed in parterres of roses, frailer and brighter than the rose of the briar, and melted beneath them into lagoons, greener and paler than the veins of a young beech-leaf. The fairy hedges were so high, so flushed with beauty, the green airy waters ran so far back into mystery, that it seemed as if at any moment God might walk there as in a garden, delicate as a moth. Down by the stream, Hazel found tall water plantains, triune of cup, standing above the ooze like candelabras, and small, rough-leaved forget-me-nots eyeing their liquid reflections with complacence. 
she watched the birds bathe. Bullfinches, smooth-coated and well-found, slim willow wrens, thrushes, ermine-breasted, lusty blackbirds with beaks of crude yellow. They made neat little tracks over the soft mud, drank, bathed, preened, and made other neat little tracks. Then they took off, as Hazel put it, from the top of the bank, and flew low across the painted meadow, or high into the enamelled tree, and piped and fluted till the air was full of silver. Hazel stood as Eve might have stood, hands clasped, eyes full of ecstasy, utterly self-forgetful, enchanted with these living toys. "'Eh, yon's a proper bird!' she exclaimed, as a big silken cuckoo alighted on the mud with a gobble, drank with dignity, and took its vacillating flight to the far ash-tree. "'Foxy ought to see that,' she added. Silver-crested peewits circled and cried with their melancholy cadences, and a tawny pheasant led out her young. Now that the dew was gone and cobwebs no longer canopied the field with silver, it was blue with German de Speedwell. Each flower, painted with deepening colour, eyed with startling white and carrying on slender stamens the round white pollen balls, worlds of silent, lovely activity. Every flower spike had its family of buds, blue jewels splashed with white, each close-folded on her mystery. To see the whole field, not only bright with them, but brimming over, was like watching ten thousand saints wrapped in ecstasy, ten thousand children dancing. Hazel knew nothing of saints. She had no words for the wonder in which she walked, but she felt it. She enjoyed it with a passion no words could express. Mrs. Marston had said several times, I'm almost afraid Hazel is a great one for wasting her time. But what is waste of time? Eating and sleeping? Hearing grave, sedulous men read out of grave, sedulous books what we have heard a hundred times? Besieging God? whom we end by imagining as a great ear for material benefits, amassing property. These, the world says, are not waste of time. But to drink at the stoop of beauty, to lift the leafy coverlet of earth and seek the cradle God, since here, if anywhere, he dwells, this, in the world's eye, is waste of time. O oh, filthy, heavy-handed, blear-eyed world, when will you wash and be clean? Hazel came to a place where the white water crossed the road in a glittering shallow ford. Here she stayed, leaning on the wooden bridge, hearing small pebbles grinding on one another, seeing jewel flashes of ruby, sapphire and emerald struck from them by the low sunlight, smelling the scent that is better than all, except the scent of air on a barren mountain or of snow, the scent of running water. She watched the grey wagtails, neat and trim in person, but wild in bearing, racing across the wet gravel like intoxicated Sunday school teachers. Then, in a huge silver willow that brooded dove-like over the ford, a black cat began to sing. 
the trills and gushes of perfect melody, the golden repetitions, the heart-lifting ascents and wistful falls drooping softly as a flower, seemed wonderful to her as an angel's song. She and the bird, sheltered under the grey-silver feathers of the trees, lived their great moments of creation and receptivity, until suddenly there was a sharp noise of hoofs. The song snapped. The willow was untenanted, and Reddin's horse splashed through the ford. "'Oh!' cried Hazel. "'What for did you break the song? A sacred bird it was, and now it's fled!' He had been riding round the remnant of his estate, a bit of hill-sheep walk that faced the mountain and overlooked the valley. He had seen Hazel wander down the road, white-limbed and veiled in tawny hair. He thought there must be something wrong with his sight. Bare legs, bare arms, hair all loose and no hat. As a squire farmer, he was very much shocked. As a man, he spurred downhill at the risk of a bad fall. Hazel, unlike the women of civilization who are pursued by looking-glasses, was apt to forget herself and her appearance. She had done so now, but something in Reddin's face recalled her. She hastily took the butterfly out of her skirt and put on her shoes and stockings. "'What song?' asked Reddin. "'A bird in the tree. What for did you fritten it?' Reddin was indignant. Seeing Hazel wandering thus so near his own domain, he thought she had come in the hope of seeing him. He also thought that the strangeness of her dress was an effort to attract him. To the pure, all things are pure. "'But you surely wanted to see me. Wasn't that why you came?' he asked. "'No, it wasna. I came to pick the little mushrooms as come with the warm rain, for there's none like spring mushrooms, and I came to see the flowers and hearken at the birds and look the nesses.' "'You could have lots of flowers and birds at Undern. "'There's plenty at the mountain. "'Then why did you come here?' "'To be by my lonesome.' "'Snub for me,' he smiled. "'He liked opposition. "'But look here, Hazel,' he reasoned. "'If you'd come to Undern, I'd make you enjoy life.' "'But I dunna want to. "'I be Edward's missus.' Be Mrs. At the phrase, his weather-coarsened face grew redder. It intoxicated him. He slipped off his horse and kissed her. I dunna want to be anybody's missus, she cried vexedly. Not your nor Edward's neither. But I'm Edward's, and so I must stay. She turned away. Good morning to you, she said in her old-fashioned little way. She trudged up the road. Reddin watched her, a forlorn, slight figure armed with a black bag, weary with the sense of reaction. Reddin was angry and depressed. The master of Undern had been for the second time refused. Hm, he said, considering her departing figure. It won't be asking next time, my lady, and it won't be for you to refuse. He turned home, accompanied by that most depressing companion, the sense of his own meanness. He was unable to help knowing that the exercise of force against weakness is the most cur-like thing on earth. End of chapter 21
Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK.